Welcome to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm Ethan Fleischer. I'm one of the game designers in R&D. And I'm Kelly Diggs. Uh, I was uh, one of the world-building leads for Dominaria. Today we're going to do part one of a five-part series on Dominaria. So one of the uh, problems we ran into when we were starting to work on the Dominaria set is what the heck is Dominaria? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think people who are people who are just joining us, uh, and even people who are playing at the time, may not appreciate just how, just how deep and broad Dominaria is. There is so much Dominaria in Dominaria. There's so much stuff there. Yeah. So uh, the first thing we did was look at all of the sets, and there are about 28 magic sets that were primarily set in Dominaria. Contrast that to uh, some of our previous Return to sets. When we returned to Ravnica, there had been three sets uh, before that set in Ravnica. When we returned to Battle for Zendikar, there were, uh, had been three sets set in Zendikar. So uh, 28 sets was quite a lot to take in. Yep, and 43 novels and anthologies, comic books, and in-world history stretching back tens of millennia, uh, and and geography as well. Yeah, so we kind of looked at all that stuff and looked at, like, what are the themes that Dominaria has that make it different from other sets? One thing we found was geography. One of the really cool things that we have at uh, Wizards R&D is this globe of Dominaria that Pete Venters made back in the misty ancient times. Yeah, Pete Venters was uh, was the head of what was then called the continuity team, uh, and there were many, many different creative efforts going on, and he was, uh, he was one of the people who kind of whipped everything into shape, and the globe was kind of his, uh, one of his big efforts to do that. So the coastlines that are on that globe, uh, which he made, it's, it's black on white, um, and he, he just made it out of a blank globe. The coastlines on that globe show up on maps in many, many different places. It really was all drawing from one source. So we looked at that. We knew, we knew where Shiv was. We knew where Keld was. We knew where Benalia was. All these places had fixed locations in relation to each other. And so for a while, we thought, oh, maybe the theme is geography. Maybe each country is represented by a color, and they have alliances with each other, and they're enemies with each other. But... We, we played around with this and we played around with it and nothing quite fit together in a satisfying structure that way. Yeah, and, and part of it was just that Dominaria is so huge and the places that you've heard of are just one small part of it, really. Um, you know, we tried to group it by continent, I remember, and the continents, it turns out, are just names that most people don't know. Erona and Tiresier and all that. Yeah, these are names that haven't shown up on a lot of card names, which is how most Magic players interact with Magic the Gathering. It's through the cards. So because Dominaria had been in so many sets, we knew that different audience members would have different expectations, right? Like some people would be really excited to see Benalish people. Some people would be really excited to see specific characters. Some people would be excited to see a mechanical theme that was familiar. And so we knew we had to cram a lot of stuff into this set. Yeah, and I know one of the concerns going in is, as people you know, heard from Mark Rosewater that we were going to try to give the set and the world a cohesive theme. One of the concerns was that we would over over-constrain, that we would make Dominaria too narrow. Um, I, I don't think we did that. I, I, feel, I feel pretty good about the, the breadth and variety that we were able to put in there. It's just one magic set, but we were, able to, we were able to put a lot of different things in there creatively and mechanically. Right, but ultimately a set full of a bunch of stuff isn't really enough for a design team to work with. We right. do need the set to be about a thing, 
so that we can design something that feel that has cohesive gameplay and evokes a certain mood. And we want to kind of rehabilitate Dominaria and bring it into line with our, uh, our, our other planes that themselves have themes. Innistrad is the gothic horror plane. Ravnica is the city plane with the guilds. Well, at the same time, we didn't want to paint over what was already there or, or again, make it feel since the depth and breadth was part of the identity of Dominaria. Yeah, so ultimately, the thing that really distinguishes Dominaria from the other planes is the history of Dominaria. It has a history that stretches back from 1993 to the present, and then, you know, in-world stretches for thousands of years. Thousands and thousands of years. And, like, uh, you know, we started talking about that. Okay, Dominaria has a history theme because we've had so many sets on Dominaria, so many things have happened there. But we actually looked back. We looked at Antiquities, um, which was the first magic set that really took a part of Dominaria and fleshed it out. And even in Antiquities, which was about Urza and Mishra digging up these Thran relics from this ancient Thran empire uh, and awakening the evil Phyrexians, even then, the very first Dominaria story was about delving deeper into Dominaria's history right. and, and being influenced by it, uh, both in good ways and in bad ways. And even just looking at the cards from Antiquities, reading the flavor text, that flavor text was written from a perspective farther into the future, looking back at Urza and Mishra, who themselves were looking back at the Thran. Right. So right. It, it was like the, the sort of idea of history was baked into antiquities. Right. Whereas, you know, our other worlds, um, you know, and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of worlds, you know, you'll, you'll see that either they've kind of always been the way they are, or there will be a couple of big things in their past, like Zendikar has the sealing away of the Eldrazi, um, you know, and a couple of things related to that. But Dominaria just has this incredibly rich, deep history, so many things that have happened over, I mean, literally 20,000 years and then some. So if you take a look at Alpha, you have a lot of cool ideas that don't feel like they're necessarily part of a cohesive world in and of themselves from that set. It's just like, here's a bunch of cool cards, Few of them have any relationship to each other. Antiquities, everything has relationship to each other. And then you get to the Weatherlight set, which sort of tied together all the stuff that had come before and said all of this stuff from Alpha, from Antiquities, from the Dark, from Legends, all of this took place in the same world. And we're going to explore this world. It was the Grand Tour. The Weatherlight was flying to Benalia and to Lanawar and to New Argive. Um, all these places that we'd seen in these different sets and tying it together. Uh, and then some other sets that really looked back, Urza's Saga block had these flashbacks to, you know, each color was set in a different time period. Some of them were in Dominaria, some of them were in other planes. Yep. But uh, all of it sort of tying Urza's story from antiquities into the Weatherlight story from you know Weatherlight onward and unifying that whole timeline essentially. Yeah, I didn't realize really until I was working on Dominaria um, how complex it is to figure out what plane and time period any given card from Urza Saga block is. You know, it's it's by color by set, um, but then the artifacts are split up, and it's it's just there's a lot there's a lot going on there. But um, but yeah, uh, Weatherlight and Urza's Saga block both uh, reused a lot of these words, um, and a lot of the words that they reused, Benelish and Lanoir, um, Yavamaya, you know, these were words that we went back to when it was time to make Dominaria, because you might know about them 
if you were playing during Alpha, or if you were playing during Weatherlight, or if you were playing during Urza Saga, or if you were playing during Time Spiral. All right, speaking of Time Spiral, there's another serious look back, especially the first set. Very much like, here are all these characters that we're transporting through time into the present from the past, so we get to see lots of characters that were mentioned in card names and flavor text that we never got to see for one reason or another in those older Magic sets. Yep, people like Safi Eric's daughter and Jaya Bowie. Yeah. So, why Dominaria now? Why are we doing it in 2018? The 25th anniversary obviously was was a driver for wanting to go back to Dominaria. Um, I, I would say honestly that a, a lot of us wanted to go back to Dominaria, and the 25th anniversary was was a reason. But it's not like, well, it's the 25th anniversary. I guess we have to go back to Dominaria. A lot of us were excited about it. It's something I remember discussing with people before it was on the schedule, just in terms of like, gosh, wouldn't you know, wouldn't it be fun to kind of see everything rebuilt a little, deliver on the the future that's hinted at in cards like New Benalia and Lanoir Reborn. Um, but definitely, uh, you know, going back for the 25th anniversary and being able to say, this is where it all began, this was Magic's original setting, uh, we're, we're going back there and looking at it in a new way. That was a big part of it. Of course, you know, we were able to establish during Origins that Liliana Vess is from Dominaria, uh, and that she's hunting down these four demons of hers, and we would later reveal that one of them is also in Dominaria, and uh, so that provided kind of the plot catalyst for our Gatewatch characters to come here. Um, but there's plenty of other stuff going on on Dominaria right now as well. So as a game designer, my, you know, I was trying to think, like, how do you express this idea of history of the past as it relates to the present? How do you express that in gameplay terms? Because I want players to interact with this world and see the past as they're interacting with the cards that are in the present. So I was thinking about what are some different mechanical spaces that could represent stuff from the past? The most natural place to go for me is into the graveyard, have mm -hmm. graveyard mechanics, because the, the graveyard literally represents what has happened in the past of this game of magic. Everything, you know, all the spells I cast are in the graveyard now. All the creatures who were here earlier but are now dead are in this graveyard. And so the, the graveyard serves as a, a metaphorical repository of the past. That sounds great. Why, why wouldn't we do that? Right. However, we had just done Shadows Over Innistrad recently, which was a graveyard theme set. And then we did Amonkhet recently, which is a graveyard theme set. And we didn't want to just get into this cadence where every few months we do a graveyard set because then Standard is always about graveyards for the whole time. And so we really needed to find a different approach to how to depict the past here. And notably, some people on the design team, including Richard Garfield, were not entirely happy with the metaphor of graveyard as past anyway. Um, Richard was always wanting to kind of poke beyond that and say, you know, the, gra the graveyard is the, it's the recent past. It's stuff that just happened. You know, what, what about the larger idea of history and how we remember things? And it was, uh, it was him pushing on that idea that helped get us to the design for sagas, uh, which ended up being a tremendous vehicle for showing Dominaria's past on magic cards. Yeah. Historically, we've shown these sort of ancient artifacts. In previous Dominarian sets, a lot of the time, if, if an artifact card showed up, especially in antiquities, it represented some object that had been made millennia ago that had been unearthed, and it was an object of great power. This contrasts to, like, Mirrodin, where, where artifacts are almost, like, biological in origin, or Kaladesh, where artifacts represent some fresh new invention that's very exciting. Dominaria doesn't have that kind of stuff. It has ancient artifacts. So we thought that having a deck with lots of artifacts would be a great way to go with that. 
And then another way to represent the past is having legendary creatures who are either immortal or very long-lived, which Dominaria happens to have a lot of those people for some reason or another, or their descendants, right? Here we could have, you know, a new hero in the mold of, of Gerard Capuchin. We could have a new Umazawa, a descendant of Tetsuo Umazawa. Yeah. Pretty early on in the design process, the creative team identified that a legendary a legendary theme would be a really cool thing. That that's they, right. You were pushing from that very early, and I was like, early. I don't... I don't know, Kelly. I don't know if that's going to work. We tried that once, and it wasn't so great. That's right, and I honestly didn't think it would work. I was thinking maybe a maybe a light theme, maybe a small cycle of things or whatever. But we definitely talked about how like oh that would that would really kind of tie everything together. The English meaning of the word legendary really really gets at this this idea of either larger than life characters, people who have done great things in the past, or who are doing great things now, or who have ties to people from the past. That was one way to tie it all together, and it ended up being. Uh, of course, the you know the thing we did both a little bit of that artifact theme and then and then a lot of that legendary theme, which was just creatively everything I wanted from the set's mechanics. Uh, so I was very happy. And then the the thing that you mentioned, sagas, was something we didn't come up with early on. This was something that happened well into vision design. But um, the idea of what are the stories people tell themselves? What are the history books people have in, in the in the present day of Dominaria? What's on the tapestry hanging on the wall in the castle? What does it have on it? And so those those sagas represent each different culture's version of you know what's the most important story from the past. Obviously, we went pretty deep on making those cards uh, very different and unique and yeah. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with all of their art representing uh, in-universe art objects that depict Dominarian history and their titles uh, reflecting uh, the titles of uh, written works or songs, uh, poems, plays that depict Dominarian history. So there was a risk with all of this backward-looking that we would become too inaccessible. Like, this would be a big inside joke for... Instead of being an inside joke for Melvins, like Time Sparrow was, it would be an inside joke for Vorthoses. And so we knew that we needed to sort of temper all of this uh, all of this navel-gazing with something that would ensure that the set would be accessible to all Magic players, not just highly enfranchised, long-time Magic players. Right, and also, as we talked about history, um, some people in the building expressed concern that it sounded sleepy, that, yeah. you know, we're talking about libraries and architectural digs and, uh, you know, all uh, monuments and tapestries and stuff, and they're like, yeah, okay, but like, whatever. Do you have anything cool? Do <laughs> you have anything <laughs> right. action-packed? Right. Which, you know, like, libraries are cool. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, fair point, we have to share show things happening on magic cards, and it was obviously never our intention to suggest that nothing was going on on Dominaria now, but we did still need an answer for what people were doing on Dominaria now, besides just uh, looking at paintings in museums and going, gosh, Dominaria, what a great history. Yeah, and, and so, like, you look at the genesis of, of magic, you look at Alpha, and I feel like that is sort of the expression of fantasy, resonant fantasy. Alpha was dripping in flavor, and I think that as magic evolved during that Dominaria period, it moved farther and farther away from that kind of resonant fantasy until you get all the way to, like, Odyssey block, where it's just like, I don't I don't know what this is about. It's all about cards changing zones or something. Right. And that obviously is not very accessible. It is sort of very meta in a way. Yeah. You know, looking to Alpha is sort of our, our touchstone for what is the, the overall feeling and mood here. Uh, you know, resonant fantasies, fantasy tropes, but not generic. Right. Like, there's nothing generic about Lanoir elves. That's right. It's like, I've never seen an elf like that anywhere else, and I doubt I ever will see one anywhere else like it. 
So, you know, Magic's own unique take on fantasy. Right. We've, of course, looked back to Alpha before. We, we looked at Alpha a lot when we were talking about M10. And the game as a whole, I think, has focused more on resonance in the last couple years. But in order to showcase different vibrant fantasy worlds that you've never seen before, we, we dip into different cultural inspirations. We dip into different fantasy tropes. And in doing that, every time we do that, we're moving away from that kind of chewy center of fantasy stuff. Not to say that Western fantasy is the purest expression of magic, but it is where it started and it is where a lot of our tropes are rooted. Um, I think we do ourselves a lot of good when we explore the edges of those things. For the 25th anniversary, for Dominari, it was time to come home in that sense. And so we had both the top-down fantasy stuff that Magic had from the very beginning, two-headed giants and dragons and wizards and all that. We also had this small stock of weird but resonant Magic-specific creatures that have accrued along the way, um, you know, things like Kavu and Homerids. I was very excited about Homerid. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing I kept expecting someone to stop me from doing, and nobody, I, I was like, so we're going to have a Homerid. Who's going to stop me? It wasn't going to be me. Who's going to stop me from putting a Homerid in? I think I put it in the set in the first place. <laughs> yeah, you probably did. You probably did. But yes, I, I, I really wanted a Homerid in, and um, nobody didn't want a Homerid in, it turns out. It's one of those things no one's actually trying to kill. So, uh, so have Hummerid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so we, so we had both all of these kind of generally resonant things as well as these things that we're digging up from Magic's past to draw on. All right. Well, I feel like we talked about the design a lot. We haven't had a chance to talk very much about the world building process, which you led the world guide team and yeah. the exploratory world building team. Yeah, I was the world building lead. Mark Winters was the lead art director on Dominaria, and he and I very early on kind of established our hive mind link and just arrived at a vision for the set that at times no one else quite understood, but um, but we were given a lot of rain because there's so much to Dominaria and we had sunk our teeth into it so deep that he and I knew where we were going. There were a couple parts of what I wanted that he didn't get, a couple parts of what he wanted that I didn't get, but we trusted each other. It was a phenomenal collaboration between me and Mark and, of course, a lot of other people. We had uh, Tyler Jacobson and Sam Burley as concept artists working on the set. Christine Choi uh, later joined us as well. Concept artists working on the set quite a lot, which informed the look. And uh, Aaron Forsyth, uh, Senior Director of Magic R&D, popped in on our world-building meetings, which was a little unusual. That doesn't usually happen, but um, it turns out he cares about Dominaria a lot. Um, and he wasn't, he wasn't dictating to us or anything, but he was there to tell us what was important to him uh, that we not lose sight of. Uh, he, I think, was one of the first people to say the phrase, get the band back together. I think he might have mm. been the one to the first one to champion that idea, get the band back together, which would become this idea of gather legends. Uh, and, uh, of course, Squee is there. In part right. to, to make to make Aaron happy. Um, now, Squeeze Immortal, you can't get rid of him, as we all know. So that was the team. And before we were working on Dominaria, before Dominaria was on the schedule, before I was actually on the creative team, at some point it just occurred to me to think, how would we go back to Dominaria? What would that look like? And I had this kind of brief vision of a fantasy world with wizards and castles where if you dig six feet down, you hit rusted metal. Right. I remember during one of the, uh, for some uh, PowerPoint presentation, I made a uh, geological strata yes. diagram and like down at the bottom was like the Thran Dynamo buried in the lowest <laughs> layer. And then like, the layer above that had like Mishra's War Machine and ab above that was like the, the Icy Manipulator and things. It was, it was a lot of fun. Right. Now, of course, you can't actually... <laughs> 
can't actually paint that as an illustration. That mm-hmm. that idea of well, if you if you were to take this illustration of a perfectly normal looking fantasy world and dig six feet down, you would hit rusted metal. Isn't that interesting? Right. Well, so what Mark Winters uh, was then in charge of was taking that idea of this bright fantasy world with this apocalyptic, almost science fiction past, and making that visualizable by putting the reminders of the apocalyptic past not underground where you can't see them because that's stupid, but in the distance, on the far horizon, you know, we started talking about Dominaria as this fantasy world with knights and wizards and castles and crashed spaceships all over the place. So there's all this evidence of apocalyptic technology and everything, but in a world that has rebuilt along more traditional fantasy lines. That was really what we wanted to capture. In terms of emotional touch points, we really like this idea of returning home. You know, magic comes home was was the notion. Um, I think our uh, our graphic designer Liz Leo was the one who said, "Welcome home." And it's like, oh yeah, that's that's really good. You know, we also talked about this idea of visiting a famous place for the first time. You know, like oh, if you weren't actually playing during Dominaria, you've heard of Llanowar Elves. You've maybe played with it in a core set. Sarah Angel, which we were able to put in the set, uh, Shiv and Dragon. You've, you've heard of these things, but where do they all come from? What is Shiv? Um, who was Sarah and who else worships her? We were able to dig into those things. We did talk during design about how colors would interact with the past. Uh, you know, white would want to preserve it and blue would study it. Uh, black would exploit it. Red, abandon or reforge it. And green, kind of remembering it to, to bear witness to things. Green, because so much of Dominaria's past has been apocalyptic and technological in nature, green has a less happy relationship with it. Um, those ideas were of varying utility for us in kind of designing the creative elements of those colors. I don't know how much they were useful to you in designing cards. They were definitely helpful. It's it's good for it's good to have a sort of idea of what is red doing in this world that kind of distinguishes it from what it's doing in every other world. It's good to have a little bit of focus. It usually doesn't have a huge impact on the overall set, but it definitely just makes things feel a little bit different if you just focus a little bit in one direction or the other. Yeah, so that you're not sitting down to make something like Kaladesh and just going, so artifacts at the top of every colors list of things to do. You've got different ways they relate to them. Um, Of those ideas, the one that I think comes out the most in the finished product is the idea of black exploiting the past. Mm -hmm. That that was just a really interesting idea. It was a take on black we hadn't seen before, that in this world, black does care about history, um, that as personified by the demon lord Belzenlock and his evil cabal, they care about history a lot. Um, Belzenlock wants to take credit for every bad thing that's ever happened in Dominarian history. He wants to say, oh, you know, that great famine and this great war and, and that apocalypse. So yeah, that was me. The Lord of the Wastes, the Walker in Night. Yeah, yeah, that was me. Um, so early, early on in design, I came to the set designer, Dave Humphreys, and I said, you know, I would love for there to be a like a black vanilla common, no abilities, that's small. It's like not like a four or seven or whatever, like we make it sometimes, not a catacomb slug, but like a two-two mm-hmm. with lots of room for flavor text so that it can be this like cabal uh, evangel extolling Bells and Locks many, many titles. And Dave did that for me. He kept that in the set. It is in the final set um, as Cabal Evangel. And uh, it is, uh, and uh, flavor text writer A.E. Marling helped me out with a specific list of titles to arrive at. And uh, that was just something I knew I wanted from the beginning, and, and we got it. So uh, we pursued these ideas of resonant fantasy, deep history, and vibrant renewal. Those were the three big ideas that we arrived at. Um, history is this background, 
high fantasy and drawing on fantasy tropes as this foreground. Um, you know, I know certainly uh, for the design team, it was an opportunity to create new mechanical expressions of famous tropes. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely our desire to not do what Time Spiral did. We kind of wanted to make the designs feel a little more forward-looking in their expression. So, you know, finding, finding new ways to express old creative concepts was kind of our byword. We, we made some exceptions here and there. We made a few time spirally designs here and there. <laughs> there are a couple. But, uh, but in general, uh, yeah, we were, we were trying to make it feel a little more progressive. Yeah, Dominari gives us a card called Two-Headed Giant. There wasn't a yeah. magic card just called Two-Headed Giant. never made that card before. Who knew? Um, on the history front, it was really, really important to Mark Winters and myself that when we went back to Dominaria, it felt like it was really Dominaria, not a generic fantasy world with the right names slapped on. You know, Time Spiral had all these cute, very specific nods to old art and old terms and everything. But if you kind of pan out and look at the whole thing, it really was pretty visually homogenous that all of the white-aligned things had the same sort of look. Mm -hmm. um, Whether they were from uh, coreless or four eyes or whatever, just on opposite sides of the globe, they had the same costume. Right, which is, you know, I mean, that's a consequence of how we build our world guides and everything, and also a consequence of the fact that everything was salt and death, and so whatever distinct costuming they had had, like, rotted away or whatever, because Time Sparrow was a bummer. Yeah. But... Um, my favorite fact about Time Spiral is that in the entire set, including the forests, there is one leaf. <laughs> There's one leaf in all of Time Spiral. It's on Yavimaya Dryad, and Rebecca Gay just couldn't help herself. <laughs> um, anyway, things are a little different this time. So we wanted to make sure that we really looked at how things had been before. So we dug back into some of the art. We searched gather for things with Benalia or Benelish or Capuchin in the name, for example, or, or flavor text. And we just kind of pan through it all. We just sort of looked at it, and we tried to pick out common themes. And we noticed, for example, that cards with those words in them had a lot of plate armor, um, that there was a lot of fabric mixed in with the plate armor, and that a number of them had stained glass themes. We also knew from, the, from some of the lore and from a few pieces of art that Benelish really liked sevens of things. Seven Benelish noble houses, formerly called clans, and so they, they really like sevens of things. You can see um, on Capuchin Standard from Urza's Destiny, you can see a tower with seven windows, which is the symbol of House Capuchin. So we did that for Benalia, for Keld, for Lanoir, for Sarah. We tried to pick out commonalities and say, okay, what's the core of this thing? If I were to ask you, describe to me a Lanoir elf, what are the three things you'd say? And then we were able to give those things to our concept artists and make make a new take on that, a more modern take on that, because, uh, you know, it was inconsistent. It was across many, many years and many, many different art teams and art styles. If you looked at all of the things with Keldon in their name, they didn't actually look of a piece. But you could find the things that most of them had and go for those. Buckles. Dominari has a lot of buckles. Lanowar Elves have buckles. Keldons have buckles. It was the 90s. Is buckles matter world? I don't know. So... We, we looked at all these commonalities. Um, of course, with one concept push, we couldn't fit everything in. Some of my favorite things ended up on the cutting room floor. There's no Yoshino in the set. That was very painful to me. Um, but concept push has a limited amount of time. There were a number of things we were able to solve at the card-by-card -card level. I felt it was really important to get gins in, for example. Yeah, gin, that, was, that was exciting to me. Like the idea that, no, sphinxes aren't the iconic creature in blue in Dominaria, Jinns are. Yeah, do you remember when Magic's first blue Sphinx was printed? 
yeah, it was in Ravnica. It was in Ravnica in 2005. So Blue Sphinx is not a part of Dominaria's history at all. We ended up having one because— Well, there was one in Cold Snap. There was one in Cold Snap, Vexing Sphinx, which yeah. vexed me somewhat. But, uh, <laughs> but So I did end up putting a Sphinx in, but it still didn't feel like they were Blue's iconic. So I, I pushed hard for, for Jin's as playing into Dominaria's history in the game, mm-hmm. um, which Mark Winters reluctantly agreed to, uh, mumbling something about smoke pants. Um, but uh, Tyler spent a lot of time on them. I believe it was Tyler. Then we, you know, we we had artists do excellent job with them in the set. So we wanted to show what had come before. It was also really important to show vibrant renewal. Every time we've gone back to Dominaria, it's been worse than before, almost uniformly. If possible, yes. If at all possible. Like, I I think Mirage was nicer than Time Spiral. It was, like, brighter and happier. But, like, other than that, it's just worse every time. It's like, hey, remember Dominaria? It's covered in glaciers now. Like, hey, remember that nice metal armor people had? Yeah, now they're out of metal, so they wear wicker. Hey, remember that wicker armor? All the plants died. It's rags now, and they don't have any noses. Like, (laughs) it just keeps getting worse. Like, what if? Hold on. And, in fact, actually, I found an article by Matt Cavada. Mm Mm-hmm who wrote uh, about Flavor on the website for a long time uh, and who was who was on uh, the team that I'm on for quite some time, found an article by him in 2007. We'd want to go back to, to this <laughs> the thing that we nostalgically fondly remember, but that wouldn't be intellectually honest. That's right. That's right. It's just like, you know, you, you just think of, you know, mom and apple pie and, and, and going back home, but folks, that's just not how it is. <laughs> Even through that article, his longing for the, for the nicer <laughs> version of Dominaria was, was palpable. Um, and that's what we wanted. Let's that's make what we this wanted. set for slightly younger Matt Cavada. <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, so we focused on this on this vibrant renewal and showing Dominaria better for once. We talked about how if Time Spiral was post-apocalyptic, Dominaria the set would be post-post-apocalyptic. We talked about how Dominaria's past had these science fiction elements, and we talked about a post-science fiction fantasy. This idea of crashed spaceships, and rather than focusing kind of slavishly on what early magic was and exactly how it looked, we wanted to focus on how it felt. On this exciting and magical world, you know, hinting at a deep history, but ripe for new explorations where there's weird stuff too. We really, really wanted it to look better for once, and uh, I am incredibly pleased with how it looks. We were able to revamp the Thalids, uh, which were my my very favorite when I was uh, a kid. And the Homerids look great. The Homerids look great. Jihan Chu is the artist who did the Homerid in Dominaria. Uh, we actually found him because he'd been doing fan art of Homerids. Yes. Um, and he just did an excellent job with the, the creature design there. I love it. Those Urborg spirit villages as oh, well yeah. was something that Winters always had a clear vision of in his head, um, and I didn't really, I didn't really understand it. But it's it's good that there's some new stuff. Some here new too. stuff. We have to keep going forward even while we're looking backward, right? That's right. And we asked ourselves, you know, what new things are there? Because um, there are new things. We brought a lot of things back. We erred on the side of bringing back things people would know and love. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to show some new things too. And we were also asking ourselves, you know, what does renewal look like in Urborg? Yeah. What is new life in a place that's mostly death? And that's how we got there. All right. Well, we have some questions from the audience. Every episode for this Dominaria series, we're going to have a history question and a geography question. So uh, Shana Driscoll asks, what happened to the slivers post-time spiral? Are they still around? Uh, yeah. When we announced we were going back to Dominaria, a lot of people started talking about slivers and how obviously Dominaria must be overrun by slivers by now. They're these terrifying super predators. So they're not in the set. Why aren't they in the set? Let's start there. Well, 
The thing with slivers is that you need a lot of them because each sliver makes the other slivers more powerful. It gives them abilities. So you need to have a, a good variety of slivers in a set. Once you have one, you need a bunch because they need to give each other cool abilities. That's what's fun about slivers. And so that means you're looking at like 15 slivers minimum. Minimum. Right. Conceivably much more. I don't remember how many time Spiral had in it, but it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah, and we didn't want to take up that much space on on one kind of creature with kind of really one fairly constrained visual design. I mean, obviously, there are many different kinds of slivers. One of our big goals, one of the reasons we landed on the theme that we did was because we want to show lots and lots of yeah. different things. Yeah. So slivers take up a lot of space. Um, we did have a Saga design for a while that was based on the Riptide project and made sliver tokens, mm -hmm. um, but without slivers to pump them, it was like, well, they're just, they're just one ones. We're not really, we're not really making anybody happy with this. Um, so, all right. So in world, what happened to them? Well, something I want to stress is that just because something doesn't appear in Dominaria the set, that does not mean that it is no longer present on Dominaria the world. Dominaria the world is huge. It is two and a half times the size of Earth. There are entire countries and regions and continents that we showed you one thing from. New Argive is this bustling modern nation, and we showed you a dude. There's plenty more to show and explore on Dominaria, and we will do that in the future. Uh, so don't assume that just because you didn't see Viachino or didn't see Cephalids or didn't see, uh, or didn't see Slivers, that they are dead. That would have been no way. No way. And hey, maybe we'll go back and you'll see them again. So what's going on with them? They are still alive somewhere. Uh, they are terrifying predators. My assumption is that in the wake of the mending, there was a communal effort by people who like to live in places <laughs> to drive the slivers out of those places. Uh, and so that the places that we're pointing the camera at, Lanoir and Keld and Benalia, you don't see a lot of slivers. Right, these in. are the great civilizations of Dominaria. Right, right. And they, they thought, okay, these, these packs of hive-minded, shape-shifting super predators are just not what we want in our streets, um, and they they were able to push them out. Um, you have the distant continent of Otaria, which is where Odyssey and Onslaught block took place. Right, and last time we saw that, it, pretty much everyone had left. Right, it was a mess, and there were slivers there because they got resurrected by a, a science project gone wrong. Um, so there may well, we really didn't point the camera at Otaria because it's so, it is pretty barren now as far as we know. Um, it's a bit of, bit of terra incognita, um, so that there could be a lot of slivers there. Uh, all right, geography question of the week. Uh, Samuel Brazel uh, asks, please explain the plate tectonics of Dominaria. Also, what are the leading theories for lunar formation? How many planets are in Dominaria's solar system? Do they ever see comets? Tell me about space. All right, so Dominaria is a planet two and a half times the size of Earth. However, its gravity is approximately the same as Earth. Why is this? We don't actually know. Nobody's bothered to explain it because it wasn't important. There's an old document that I believe Pete Venters wrote that says that the secrets lie deep within the planet's core. Right. But there are a few clues. Um, if you read all of the novels about Dominaria, which I have done, uh, you'll discover that uh, large water-filled tunnels were discovered underneath both Otaria and uh, Sukervia, which is uh, over in Jamura. So there may be more of these tunnels everywhere. Maybe there are just like huge amounts of tunnels crisscrossing everywhere, which would reduce the mass of the planets compared to, uh, you know, the density of the planet when compared to Earth. There's like large areas of intense volcanism uh, around places like Shiv and the islands off the southern coast of Jamura. So that indicates, uh, you know, there's, there's something weird going on down there. 
I'm not going to pretend to understand what it is. I'm not a hollow earth scientist, but... Uh, I, I, and I'm not a fantasy geologist, so I don't know. Yeah, we do know that uh, there are plate tectonics similar to how Earths work. Pete Venters, who uh, we mentioned earlier, did a lot of work on this. He, uh, The Dominaria globe has plate boundaries written on it and arrows indicating which plate is moving in which direction. So clearly he did a lot of work on this. Um, it was not especially well reflected in the later world building, though, after after he left. Um, it, I don't think that he, the globe was consulted when people were deciding where to put mountains. You know, the, there's a, a big plate boundary that goes right through the middle of Yavamaya in the invasion novels. That's where all the Kavu came out. There's no little red line going through Yavamaya on the globe. So, unfortunately, it was not maintained. Um, so... The plane of Dominaria, there, different planes have different cosmologies. Theros has a, a Homeric cosmology where it has a flat world with waterfalls going off the side and rivers around it on the outside. Uh, Dominaria is much more conventional, you know, despite being some kind of weird hollow planet. It is otherwise fairly uh, Earth-like. It's in a solar system. We don't really know anything about what's outside of that solar system, but um, there are planets. We don't know exactly how many, but uh, I will give you the name of uh, one of those planets. One of the more inner more planets closer to the sun is called Genuo. That is mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. I will take this opportunity to mention a question that I get, like, on Twitter a lot. Planes are not planets. You cannot get in a rocket ship and travel from Ravnica to Theros. That's just not, that's not how that works. Uh, Dominaria is a plane that contains a planet that matters that's called Dominaria and then a bunch of planets that don't matter that are called things like Genuo. Mm -hmm. um, so it has conventional space, and I guess somebody on Dominaria could—I mean, people on Dominaria have launched into space, in right. fact. Right, yeah. So Dominaria has two moons— they have lots of names based on the different cultures, uh, but the the most common names that we usually see are the Null Moon for the smaller moon and the Mist Moon for the larger moon. The Mist Moon is, is kind of a, a normal moon, much like Earth's, presumably naturally occurring, not of any particular uh, importance or note. The Null Moon, however, is really weird. The Null Moon was originally this gigantic megastructure built by the Thran thousands of years ago, and it was launched into orbit to keep it out of Yawgmoth's hands during the Thran-Phyrexian War. And so, hardly anybody knows about this, but it was launched up there, and then in various stories, people have visited it. A bunch of planeswalkers went up there during the Ice Age and had a big fight up there. Gerard rammed it with the weatherlight, Yeah, rammed the weatherlight straight through it to guide a beam of white mana to kill Yogmoth. Yeah. Um, this is one of my favorite dumb Easter eggs in Dominaria. Uh -huh. The statue of Gerard, shown on Triumph of Gerard, uh, is holding a spear and killing Yogmoth. Um, you will notice that the blade of the spear looks like the weatherlight, and the pommel of the spear is round. The pommel of the sphere actually represents oh, the, null, the moon. null moon. Nice. And the haft so of the sphere represents <laughs> this beam of white mana. Um, now, if you actually read the novel, the beam of white mana was not even effective. That's not what killed Yogmoth. But from the outside, it was very confusing. So the Benelish believe that Gerard guided the weatherlight through the null moon, blasted Yogmoth with this beam of white mana, and that saved the day. And they have this spear with the weatherlight uh, tip and the, and the round pommel to kind of memorialize that. Very symbolic. Highly symbolic. All right, well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week with more Dominaria content on the Magic Story podcast. I've been Ethan Fleischer. And I remain Kelly Diggs. See you next week.